You're listening to Self-Publishing Journeys, the weekly podcast for all new and aspiring self-published authors. Stand by for tips, resources, hints, and practical techniques to help you on your own self-publishing journey. Meet indie authors at different stages of their writing careers and hear how they manage to get their own books published and making sales. For show notes, web links, and useful resources, please head to selfpublishingjourneys.com. Now, here's your show host, self-published author and digital marketer, Paul Teague. Hello and welcome to Self-Publishing Journeys episode number 77 for Monday the 21st of August 2017. My guest on today's show is Morgan Bailey, a freelance editor and creative writing tutor. Morgan is also a writer. She's self-published numerous short story collections, a chick lit novel, a couple of crime and mystery novellas, a series of writer's workbooks, many online articles, and she dabbles with poetry. She's also a speaker on anything writing-related, a panel moderator, and an event tutor. Oh, and Morgan edits for Bloodhound Books, too. We first met at the Crime and Publishment event, which takes place near Gretna Green every year. When we chatted for the podcast, I started by asking Morgan what career path she'd started on before getting involved in a writing career. Well, I was a secretary. I, it was of the era when you went to the careers advisor at school and it was somebody brought in, I think, once a year. And she said, the first question was, actually, I can't even remember if it was a he or a she. The first question was, what do you want to do with the rest of your life? And I said, oh, I don't know. And she said, well, you're a, you're a girl, go and be a secretary. And that was it. That was my careers advice. So my dad owned a small chain of photographic shops. So I ended up being his secretary for three or four years and working in the shop. And then I left there because my, you know, lived with my dad, worked with my dad, ditto my brother. And it was just, you can't work with family. So I went off and on and off did uh, different jobs for being, as a being a secretary for different companies. So I guess things like writing and spelling and grammar and accuracy, all these things were ingrained at that stage, which is pretty good training. I always like to know how you got to where you are now. So when did the writing come out of that? Well, I I moved up from Buckinghamshire to Northamptonshire 25 years ago, and I didn't know anybody. Work was supposed to move up here, and they moved to Surrey. So it was kind of, well, I'll move up here where I can afford to buy a house. Um, And so I didn't know anybody, so I went to evening class, And I brushed up on my French and German, then brushed up on my computer skills, Word, Access, Excel, etc. And then it was come January, what's next in the prospectus? And there was creative writing. And I'd always enjoyed English language and literature uh, at school. And I blame Stephen King for me wearing glasses because I was an avid reader under the duvet with a torch. And... So I went to evening class and it was I took along a poem. I hadn't written much at that stage. And I took along a poem, which I'm still very fond of. It's through the eyes of an 18 month old boy, just sort of saying, you know, commenting on on the family, the grandmother's knitting and dad's just in from work. And the um, mother is is making his goo. And so I took it along. And Sally Spedding, who I'm still friends with, crime writer. She was the the tutor and she pulled it to pieces. And I drove home thinking, that was horrible. I never want to go back there. But the homework was to write a crime story. And it was literally light bulb moment. And it took me probably a couple of years of being a writer, of being a, yes, a writing, that 
was the, the switch then to thinking I want to do this as for a living. And then it took me another eight years to give up my day job. And I've been freelance since 2012, but more as an editor rather than as a writer. So but, poetry, I always think, is interesting because, you know, I, I poetry was something that fri- I was frightened off that at secondary school, I think it was, and, and never came back to it again. So so is, uh, is poetry something that's very um, special to you, something you'd like to write still? Well, I wouldn't say that Sally killed it off, but <laughs> I've written I've written very little then uh, since then. Um, and it's just prose. I love flash fiction. So I, I still write some flash fiction and I judge a couple of flash fiction competitions as well. And it's that if I had to choose between novels and short stories, then I'd go with short stories. I like the brevity. You know, give me a give me a book to read and a choice between one of these quick reads, which you can do in an hour or a Ken Follett doorstop. And I'll go with the quick reads every time. I think it's the impatience in me. I want to know what happens at the end. Yet you started with Stephen King, and he's produced some pretty I hefty did. novels. Yes, that was the old, the original, the, the uh, Firestarter and um, Christine, and the, the classics. I think so. Yes, they were they were big chunky books. But then you know you leave home and you get a house and life takes over, and everything's sort of more bite sized now. And also, I've been for the last couple of years, day, editing is my day job. So effectively, I read from Monday morning to Friday night. So I'm less inclined to then pick up a book and read it, sadly. That uh, first bit of feedback that you got for your writing might mm. have ruined you for life, perhaps. Because yeah, absolutely. It's very important how we receive our feedback as authors, isn't it? It's quite a – we stick our neck on the chopping block every time it we is. write. It is. Well, when I did my, my BTEC, because I teach creative writing as well, and when I did my BTEC, I was – taught and it's common sense really to start with praise and then give constructive feedback and it's not it's no good to anybody saying this is rubbish you've got to say this isn't quite working because and then and then end on a high so that you lead with a high and then the person remembers the high at the at the end and then they've got some some good constructive feedback in the middle Feedback you know, it's an interesting thing, feedback, isn't it? Because it needs to needs to lift ultimately, doesn't it? Rather than put down, I think it does absolutely. I mean, when I send back uh, the the work to the the author or publisher with the the comments, I will say at the end, you, know, you don't have to agree with everything because it's just my experience and my opinion. And most people say that they agree with most of the things I I said, but ultimately, as I say to them, it's their baby. You know, they know what they mean by something, but it takes somebody else who doesn't know what they what's in their head to think, well, that doesn't quite work. What do you mean by that? So I literally I edit it as a reader and a writer and an editor. You and I first met at Crime and Publishment, an event that I'm always talking about because I enjoyed it so much. Uh, uh, it, was, it, it was this year, wasn't it? It was earlier this year. Yes. Is that right? It was, yes. yes. Uh, it was uh, middle of March. <laughs> That's right. Yes, yes. it's whizzing by, isn't it? Uh, it is. And it, it, was, it was a great event. And then you just told me that um, when you started to write crime, um, it mm. really just fired something in you. And, uh, and I, I know you're very, very much immersed in that, that life now. What was it about crime that appealed to you then in those early creative writing days? I think, well, I still think Stephen King had an influence because that is very dark. And also, I loved the Tales of the Unexpected, 
the Roald Dahl, who actually lived in a couple of towns away from me when I lived down south. And my dad did some photography for him. So I could have met him, but uh, sadly it didn't happen. Um, so I think the dark side has always been there. And it's a bit of an escapism. You know, I'm, I'm a nice person and I haven't, I'm touching wood, I haven't killed anybody yet um in in real life <laughs> we haven't finished um, this interview yet but, well <laughs> but my 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 next door neighbor has a, appeared in different guises in some of my some of my stories so yeah i think it's it's you know a lot of people read for escapism either their life is very dull or they've got so much going on that they want to read about something better so they might read romance because there's no romance in their life or they used to be and there isn't anymore um, or we just, you know, we, we all have a dark side. We all have a good side and a dark side. And they're all people that we want to do nasty things to. But the great thing about being a writer is that we get to do it on paper. When I look at your uh, Amazon author page, there is just this huge list of, of different books. And uh, interestingly, you've got fiction, nonfiction. Uh, your first book was called The Serial Data Shopping List, which is that a, is that crime, doesn't sound like crime to me, that one. It isn't. No, that's my one and only chiclet. Oh, really? That, <laughs> yes, that was something I did for the, my third NaNoWriMo. And I, I literally, I'd, I'd done a couple before then, and I thought, oh, it's the end of October. I better think about what I'm going to write about. And because um, I'd had, it's sort of November and the days were drawing in, I thought I want to write something a bit more cheerful. So because Hitman Sam and After Jessica were the two crime ones, they, they were the first two. And so I just went through, I, as most people do, I have a Word document with loads of, um, of notes in it. And there were a lot of these weird and wonderful men. So, and there were 40-something of them. So I thought, okay, let's create a, a female to go and meet them all. So hence I created uh, Izzy, Isabel McFarlane, and I've based it in Northampton. So when I go out and do events, it's the best seller because everybody knows the, the location. So she meets, she set the task, she's a journalist, and she set the task to date 31 men in 31 days and write about it. But she goes speed dating in the middle, so she actually meets over 40 um, and it's some a lot of people say you know how how autobiographical is it um and she happens to be five foot ten and blonde with varying weight issues and she likes Bailey's and she likes Ben and Jerry's and so and some of the dates there is a builder in there who was based on somebody I'd met and um yeah so I, I wanted to do something fun for the the thirty days of November. And I ended up writing for 28 days, and I read 117,540 words in just under a month because it all just flooded out. Wow. That's some total. I don't think I've ever written that number for a book. That's incredible over a month. It, it is. I think I'm, the most I wrote was about 12,000 in a day. I was, I was working part-time, so it was kind of Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday morning I could write, and then after work, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And then the weekend. So it was literally I had no social life for a month, um, but it all just flooded out. And having been a secretary, I typed really quickly. So, yeah, it all just and, you know, as a writer, you'll know your character just takes over. And I was Izzy for for a month. Um, it then took a year to edit it. That's the slow bit. And even though I'm an editor professionally, it's not my favorite job to do when it comes to my own writing. I'd like to just write the first draft and give it to somebody else to sort out. 
I know, I know that feeling. <laughs> <laughs> so um, you said that you've got typing skills. Now it's interesting because I think most authors are just, I'm just, a, I'm still a two finger uh, typer. I could do it quite fast. Um, yeah. But, but typing and composing while you're typing are slightly different skills. Are you able to do that? Can you type as fast as you can compose? Pretty much. I mean, I, I know now really when I'm waffling and I can be a good waffler, but I'll still type it because you never know when we go back to it, whether it's any good or whether it applies. You know, you might write a whole scene that isn't actually to do with anything else. You know, they might be sitting on a porch drinking a cup of tea and just talking about the weather and it doesn't move the story on. It doesn't particularly show the characters. So then but I'll still write it and then score it out. So that when I get to it, when I go back and edit, I can then decide whether it stays or not, which is what I'm doing with the work in progress at the moment. I wrote it three or four years ago, and I've got a publisher interested in it. So, um, yeah. It's all very exciting, isn't it? Now, I, I, I it want, is. I want to work out how we got from um, the creative writing classes that you were doing and then yes. obviously gone via NaNoWriMo, which is, a, which is great trainer wheels for, for getting the books written. Did, um, did you publish your, your early creative writing efforts from the classes? Um, well, in classes, it was sort of short stories, which I think is still buried in, in a word folder somewhere. Um, I have got, you mentioned my Amazon page, which has gazillions of books, but I did a thing called Story a Day May back in 2012 where an English lady uh, called Julie, who lives in America, she puts a different prompt up every day in May and then gets people to write about it, as I do on my blog every weekday. And so I wrote those stories, and I was blogging them at 5 o'clock every day in 2012, did it again, sorry, 2011, 2012, 2013. And when it got to 2013, I thought, I want to keep going. So I literally blogged at 5 o'clock a new story every day for a year. And that then ended up being my 55 p.m. fictions, uh, five collections of those. So that that's all gone online. But no, I should revisit them. And I have some poetry, what I call bad poetry, that uh, I need to go back to um, and just see if it's any good. You know, I won't put up anything that, that I don't want people to read. And although a lot of writers have to be have to write for a living, um, and I, I'd like my books to sell gazillions of, of copies, but I would much rather sell a book to be read. You know, I, I, it's all very, it's lovely when somebody buys my book, but I don't want it to sit on a shelf and you know, never get to it. But, yeah, so those are. So, yeah, I have more content. You know, when people say, oh, I've, I've read everything you've ever written, it's, I'm sure there are, there are no authors out there that have published every single word that they've ever written. Because the early stuff isn't going to be as good. In 2011, 2012, um, self-publishing was, it's strange to say, actually, in, in its infancy. It was a different animal then to what it is now. So mm. when, what were your first experiences with self-publishing like? Were you just uploading a Word document and hoping for the best? Well, I was. The, the, the serial data shopping list was the first thing I published. So that was 2000. I'd written it in 2011, um, and I published it in 2000. And it must have been the, seri- the story a day, May. Um, and I put it on. I'd heard about Smashwords, so I put it on Amazon, 
and put it on Smashwords, which then links to Kobo and Barnes and Noble and so on. And they were at the time, the Amazon were only taking HTML. So you had to convert the Word document to an HTML file and then upload that and then put in all your keywords and your descriptions and so on. Um, and Smashwords as well. And it was very much a learning curve. You know, a lot of people are frightened of self-publishing because they don't know what they're doing. And then when I say, well, all it is, is just it's a Word document, it's a cover, um, and it's just how much, decide how much you want to to charge for it and all the information. And I have writing friends who don't know how to do it themselves, and they know I do. So I put, I log in as them and then put them up for them. So it's it's very much a learning curve. I I did. I'm sure we'll talk about covers, um, but trial again with covers is trial and error. You know, you see some really um, basic. I'll be nice. Some basic covers um, up there. So you know, it's 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 like anything. You don't know a language until you learn it, and it takes time to learn. So you don't know how to self-publish until you you have a go a few times and get it right. I call this uh, iteration, which is something you do. I've built um, softwares in the past, and it's just something that you do. You improve mm. bit by bit by bit by bit. And I'm interested to see yeah. in the serial data shopping list, you've re-edited mm. it and republished it in May 2016. So what made you go back to that and, and give I it a did. re-edit? I did. Well, I think, you know, as we as we move on, it was something I'd written relatively early. And I've done the same with, in fact, although I'd written – after Jessica and Hitman Sam before the serial data shopping list, I only published those about 18 months ago um, because I knew they were my early works and I wanted to go back through them. And, and with uh, having written for 10 years with more of an expert eye on, on what works and what doesn't. And with my own work, it's more difficult because I have to detach myself from it. Um, but I'd left them so long that they felt like somebody else's work almost. Um, but with that one, I, it was sort of partially sneaky because I'd, um, I was a Red Cross volunteer and also I got friendly with a local cafe owner and I wanted, and they both said, well, put us in the book because it's the Northampton. So it was a good opportunity to create new, it was Sunday afternoon and um, Izzy wasn't doing anything. So I sent her up to the Red Cross shop because they're open on a Sunday to go and buy uh, a new outfit and then um she was hungry so she went to the cafe so i did a, a book signing down at the cafe with the new edition with them featuring in one of the chapters that's great isn't it it's, i so, think this is the lovely thing about writing is you can weave in all sorts of little personal experiences and, and people you know and some you want them to know it and some you don't you can exactly i mean that's a great thing about self-publishing and and the fact that you can literally if somebody messages you and said oh i found a typo on page you know 112 you can go in correct it and then re-upload it whereas if you've in the old days where you there was none of this the self-publishing was going to a, a local press getting them to do a thousand copies and if somebody says you've got a typo on page 42 then you've got a thousand copies with a typo on page 42 whereas now it's i literally i'll, I'll get because i've got several titles i'll get 50 at a time of the quantities that i need mixed throughout the the titles 
So it's it's much it's a brilliant time to be a writer. You know, we have Wikipedia and Google and other websites yes, that we can right. get our information from. So it's fantastic. I've noticed something you do in the front of your books. I just I just comment on this because I've never seen anybody else do it. In that you put your story word count in at the front. Is there a reason for that, or is it just a, just a habit? I oh yes, I did. I think I started doing that with the short stories because some of them. I mean, one of them in in I can't remember which book it is now. Um, one of the prompts was to write a one hundred word single sentence, and so I think I just did because. People had asked me, or oh, how long is it? Um, and you can tell from a paperback how bit, how roughly how thick a book is. Um, but it's yeah, I'm not sure why I I did it. But I think it was the it was the short stories that prompted me to do that. I think it's a nice uh, idea, actually, as you say, because on a Kindle, unless you have a real dig around mm. in the in the wording underneath the description, usually it's pretty hard to mm. find sometimes. So. Uh, no, it's a nice, uh, nice little it, idea. I thought it is. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> well, on Amazon, on Amazon, they tell you how many pages it is, and some editors actually charge per page. But a page could be literally the last two lines of a chapter, or a heavy, dense Catherine Cookson description, where you ha- you might have five hundred words on a page because it's setting the scene. So, yeah. I'm interested that you you self edit because you know one of one of the problems with writing almost is that you have to step aside and let almost let somebody give you third party views on it um, you do yes i only self edit initially oh. and then i i have a core of beta readers oh. um and i mean one of them in, in particular tony is just amazing you know he will pick up things and i'll look at it and he'll, he'll give me his feedback and i'll go yeah but that's obvious why didn't i see that because again as i mentioned earlier on i know what i mean by something Whereas unless you're conveying it without telling, then, you know, saying someone thing I pick up in, in my editing is somebody will do a really nice show and and uh, Andy slammed his fist on the, the table and then they'll they'll add a tell. Andy was angry. And so unless, you know, you're telling something um, and my beta readers are brilliant, they'll just pick up all sorts and there will always be something. Nobody's. I've never sent a book out to them, and and you know nobody has ever come back with nothing to say. How, how so interesting is that for you, though? Because you, in many respects, you're you're getting all the, the 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 sorrow that authors receive when they get critiques on their own work, and then also you're you're mm-hmm. giving it out uh, professionally in, in a nice way, of course, in a constructive way. Mm. So that must make you better at your editing job because you know what it's like to receive bad news. Well. I I like to think so. I I have a checklist of things I look out for. Um, one thing with you know, we know not to say er because we say er in real life, but we don't put it in our writing. But I find a lot of wells, and you can often look down the the left hand side of a page, and characters will go, well, I don't know, and some some of them are fine, but in, I mean, in one novel there might there might be a hundred of them. And it's okay to for one character to have a, a quirk. I call it the Ethel Skinner. I don't know if you remember, if you ever watched old school uh, EastEnders. Mm-hmm. Oh, when, Ethel, yes, um, I remember. With Ethel the, with the dog. And her, her mm. dog, Willie. That's right. Yes. My little yeah. Willie, yeah. Yeah. And uh, in my editing book, I, um, I mentioned there's a, there's a YouTube video where she rushes into the pub and she says that uh, one of the, the Charlie uh, Cotton 
was uh, decreased. <laughs> yes, he's, he was decreased on the M25, whereas she meant deceased, but actually probably, you know, if he was probably accurate on both scores. Um, but it's just, you know, and then that makes the character. People remember her because she got words wrong, um, and it's brilliant. So... Yeah, there's lots of lots of little things. So I have a checklist. So when I open the document to start with, I do a, a, a sweep of it all, picking up the, the standard stuff. Um, a lot of characters will bite their lips too often, and you kind of get to the end, and they've bit, bitten their lips 27 times, and you kind of think, have they got any lip left? But as an author, I mean, I've I've been picked up on, on, pe- on characters sighing too much and shrugging. And we we only shrug with our shoulders, so you, you can chop out, you know, you shrug two shoulders, you could just shrug. And it's little, I mean, a lot of it's fine-tuning, um, but I one tip I give is that if you've got, you want to let your characters do everything, cut, cut down on the narration if you can. And if you've got a, a scene that isn't working, get two coloured highlighters, highlight in one colour all the, the narrator, you know, Andy was angry, and then versus Andy shrugged his shoulders, so the character's doing or saying in another highlighter. And if you've got too much of the narration highlighter, then you need to, to show more, mm. things like that. Well, that's an interesting tip. I'd probably get caught with that one, I think. Yeah. <laughs> so, maybe but I'm, a, I'm the same. You know, however many times I go through it, it's never enough. And my beta readers will always come back and spot something. So you always need a second pair of eyes. When I was um, putting together the, the editing guide, you know, a couple of people said to me, well, won't that make you redundant? I said, no, it'll just, I said, it might. You know, some people might read it and, and use it and then think, well, they don't need me. Um, but there will always be things that somebody else will pick up on. Even if then they get a friend to look through it, there will always be something. I go back to my to stuff that's been edited several times. And there'll always be something, you know, we can edit until we have to literally let it go and say, OK, I've done as much as I can and let it go. I'm very interested to know how you move from being that that new creative writer with the poem, uh, mm. receiving bad feedback to, to a point where you can say, you know, actually, I'm now in a position to give other writers feedback. What what kind of, I don't know, experience, I guess, do you need to, to, to do that? Well, for me, it was um, joining a writing group. So Sally's was a sort of half writing group and half workshop. So we wouldn't do any writing on the spot, but we'd take our work in and everybody would give feedback. And then obviously we'd write in between. And then I that finished and I joined other local writing groups. And it was sharing of information and sharing of, of our work and getting feedback. And I still belong to a couple. I was chair at, at one stage, but I, I took a step back to uh, just so I could crack on with other things and, and go when I could. Um, and it, it's the, the mixture between going to a good school and good grammar to going to to writing groups and seeing how other people give feedback and also doing the teaching qualification. It was very much on, on how to, how, what is useful to us as a, as a writer um, and how to give the feedback so that somebody's not going to drive home and think that was horrible. I never want to go back again. So it was, and it was going to lots of one day classes and weekend courses and just being immersed in the whole world um, I, I'm not long back from Harrogate, 
and that's a crime writing weekend where it's mostly talks and there's a lot of networking in the bar afterwards. Um, and I still I tend to concentrate on crime events um, because some general workshops I kind of it's always interesting to see how other people teach. But you do when you've been to so many for 10 years, you do kind of hear a lot of the same thing. Whereas I with crime, it's all crime related. So it's more of an interest to me. When I was digging around researching you, um, I found <laughs> that in 2010, you started a writing podcast, which means that you were years ahead of your time. Because um, I think I had a very early skirmish with podcasting, I think, in about 2011, about the same time, actually. Just gave it a go mm. and decided I hadn't got the, the energy for it then. But you, you went to episode okay. 85, which is no mean feat. Congratulations on that. That's a huge achievement. So, just tell me about the Thank podcast. You. Um, yes, it was called Bailey's Writing Tips, and it's I've still got it all on my on my hard drive. Um, and somebody, I went to a self-publishing talk at Day um, up in Leicester in June, and unbeknown to me, a lady from a top publisher was sitting behind behind me. And part of the one of the sessions was on podcasting. And so I mentioned that I'd been doing it and she came up to me afterwards and said that she'd be very interested in in hearing the the podcasts and maybe doing something uh, with her and and the publisher. And uh, and it made me think that actually these days with the popularity of YouTube and which is obviously more video that I should go back and and get it up and running but they were mixtures between every other session was uh, writing tips and then there was generally a theme so it might be a week on script writing Um, and then one of the one the ones in between were flash fiction so I I part of my blog is flash fiction Fridays and so I'd have people from all over the world sending me up to 500 words that they'd written and I'd put them on my blog and then after a while, I thought, well, let's uh, let's read them out. And because I'm English, I think with a sort of an ordinary English accent, they loved it. So I'd record their story. I'd obviously ask them if they didn't mind first, and I'd record it. I think I did three in one session, something in one episode, something like that. Um, so some of them are, are those other writers' flash fictions, um, but the rest are how to write and news you know, websites for people to visit, things like that. So would you resurrect that? Because there's a good back catalogue in there of content. There is. I mean, some of it will be out of date, but certainly I've got all the scripts as well. So I'd like to. I'd like to do that. And also I'm going to do uh, what I'm going to call, I haven't started them yet, but Morgan's Micro Masterclasses, (laughs) where I do kind of 10-minute sessions on on YouTube. because I think, you know, somebody about six months ago said, are you still blogging? Isn't that old hat? And they say it's vlogging now. So, you know, people like to um, to see you and get their, their information. But it's almost like you're standing up in class and, and teaching them if you're there face to face, albeit one sided. I do think you were, um, I mean, very forward looking doing a podcast in those days because, um, it was the pioneers um, doing it then. Uh, you really mm. were, we really were in the pioneering days of, of podcasting. And what ultimately made you give it up? 
Well, I'd started, I think, because I I was listening to others. And as you say, there weren't there weren't very many of those around. Mayor Lafferty was one of the early ones with uh, You Should Be Writing. And I think she ended off the, the podcast saying, right, that's me. You go off. You should be writing. <laughs> and um, so she kind of inspired me to do my own. And, and I'd done so many and, and life was just sort of taking over. I'd got a full time job. Um, I was doing chairing the writing groups and I was just finding that I was having less and less time and and I wasn't giving it the commitment that I needed to really and so I wasn't advertising it and and the numbers the the subscription numbers were it was all free but the subscribers I was looking at the stats and and it's you know you, you get as much as you give and um and I just found that it was it was time I didn't really have at the time um that I that I should have perhaps found time and and carried on, but as you say, I've got a lot of content there, and so I ended up pulling it, and um, and we'll we'll have a look at certainly revisiting it. Uh, yeah. Let's move on to your blogging then, because your your yes. website is astonishing. I mean, there is so much uh, well free information on there and, and stuff that's of interest on there. How, how long has that been going? Because you must have a couple of years on that site now. Uh, I did well yes and then some I started in March it was the tail end of March 2011 so and I've I think I've posted over 4,000 posts something like that um so yes it's it's built up over that amount of time so I'm I'm also the competition I'm the new competition columnist for of uh, competitive edge for writers forum magazine so which is great because I have my competitions page on my website that I can dip into, and that's all January to December. Um, and so it's it's getting it, all the information and and adding it when people write to me and say well, we've got this new competition, and so I add it onto the blog and add it to if it's far enough in advance, um, add it to the column. Um, and it's just things that people have given me or I've come across, you know, I'll reblog other people's WordPress sites that I think that my visitors would be interested in. So it's just things I've, I've come across and my own writings on there and competition information and submission places that people can submit information to. And it's all information that I can use it's the all the pages if i've got a novel i can send it off to the, the places that i list on there um so it's almost like a public information store for for me as well yeah, there's there's an amazing amount on there i think you're also as far as i could see you're a, a stop on blog tours as well aren't you um i have been yes i'm planning to to get a blog tour out there i'm a bit rubbish at marketing my own stuff um, and what I've toyed with the idea, because it's just finding time, is to find a writer who's also a marketing guru to swap skills. So it's almost like the old barter system. So I will edit their novel while they go and market my books, things like that. But blog tours are brilliant. I've just the one that went up today was a reblog of somebody else's blog tour. Um, and so it's yeah, it's it's you know we're very much give and take we're very friendly people writers there are there was somebody i, I was up at uh, harrogate as i said um and and somebody said oh you know they're backstabbing and but i haven't really found that there's a that like anywhere you know there's a core of of people who might resent 
other writers' success. But, you know, a, a first novel isn't necessarily the first novel written. And an overnight success isn't, is unlikely to be an overnight success. They might have written eight books before one got picked up and got published and, and then became a, a success. And even if you're published by a top um, publishing house, it doesn't mean to say that you can then sit back and, and not do any marketing. That's the hard bit. And for a self-publishing author, that's the hardest bit. You know, the work starts once the, the book is online, because how does anybody know it's there? How does your blog um, work for you? I mean, you, you said yourself that people say, oh, are you, are you still blogging? How, how does it work mm. for you? Because you are very, very active on that blog. Uh, I, I do a lot of reblogging more so than, than new posts these days. Um, but I think it's the amount of, quant you know, the quantity I've got on there. Because when people do Google searches, if you've got one post on a blog that you haven't done anything with for years, then they're unlikely to find it because you'll be so far down the list. Whereas because I've got 4,000 posts and you've got the, the valuable keywords for the, the SEO, the search engine optimization, it's just a case of people stumbling upon me. And that's how I get some of my editing work. I, I do editing for two publishers, but I get quite a lot of, of direct work as well where people have, have googled editors and and found me that way but i think it's down to quantity when i first started blogging it, i heard that you should put something up every week um and so i did in fact with my first i had a my previous blog uh, was a blog spot one and i i had uh, i think i had about 12 posts on it this was pre 2011 I, my, the total life of it, I put 12 posts up. I hadn't done anything for a year, and my total views were 327. <laughs> Whereas now, I think I'm well over 400,000, oh, something wow. like that, which sounds, sounds good. But over six years, you know, some people get that in their first year if they're prolific and they do all the right things and so on and so forth. So, yes. One of the things but it's I time-consuming. Sorry, one of the things I notice about you is that you are um, very consistent. Um, your podcast, uh, you've released a lot of episodes, you've released an awful lot of uh, blog posts, and you've also released a lot of books. So you must have uh, a great work ethic. You must do a lot of hours. Um, I more so before the editing, really. Um, and that's kind of, especially since I've, I've been taken on by one of the publishers. So what I've had to do then is just say, right, Monday morning to Friday evening is client work. And then all the whole of the weekend is me time is my writing and my editing and so on and so forth. Um, because I was just finding I wasn't getting any, there was a, a gap where I wasn't getting any of my own work done. And then you kind of think, well, I'd almost stopped being a writer because everything else had taken over and it's very easy to for that to happen and one of my favorite statistics with my students is if you write 300 words a day and we'll often do that in in 10 or 15 minute bites and um, in the classes so i say if you write i said i'd say right how count out how many words you've got and and i'd ask a couple of people who i'd seen scribbling furiously and they'd say well 312 or 297 or whatever and i say right do that every day and after a year you'll have your novel written so 300 words a day is over a hundred thousand words in a year 
So, so go home and start your novel. And when I teach you this time next year, you'll have had it written. Yeah, it, it reminds me of that, and I'm going to misquote it. But you know the Confucius quote, a journey of a thousand miles, it starts with a single step? Okay. Have you heard yes, that one? Yes, that, that sounds right, yes. Yeah. But it's the same principle, isn't it? Just a little bit each day um, it is. does the job. Yes. Well, I think NaNoWriMo is very daunting because it's 1,667 words a day. But it does focus the mind. And I did do that for, for about five or six years. And I try to every November. Um, although one year I kind of cheated and I did it as 50,000 words of worth of short stories, which still meant that I had an anthology. That was a, and that's still sitting in my files somewhere. Um, but it is, you know, we, we daunt ourselves with, we, I've got to write a thousand words. And then we might write, we might not, we might write 50 words and then get stuck. And then, but 50 words a day is still a great chunk by, you know, the end of the year. You said you're doing some work for a uh, tr traditional publisher now. Are you allowed to tell yes. us which one and, and what that involves? Um, I've, I'm sure she'd be delighted for me to say, because I think it's general knowledge, um, and she'll be listening to this when it goes out, because I did mention to her. Um, yes, it's Bloodhound Books. Oh, I like Bloodhound Books, um, yeah. Oh, do you? Great. Mm, well, I, um, I follow them avidly, because I, you know the, the authors uh, that, that they attract. Mm. Yes, absolutely. I mean, they, they are, they're just, they've grown so much. I've been with them since November um, and I'm on my 12th novel with them. Um, and it's just, it's, it, they're, they're investing so much in their authors um, by getting it, everything, every step is covered by good people. You know, they've got somebody dedicated to marketing. They've, I'm not the only editor on one book. So it'll go through two or three different people. Um, and it's, you know, as well as the, the monetary investment, um, they're, they're investing. They want their authors to, to succeed and do well with them. And a good publisher, an author will want to sign, you know, once they've signed their two books, I'm not sure two, three books is the norm. Um, then they'll want to stay with them. You know, I've, I know of authors who've, who've been taken on by a publisher and, they, and the publisher has done nothing for them. You know, but it makes it makes sense. You know, the more books an author sells, the more money the publisher makes. I have a very short list of traditional publishers that are on my radar. And interestingly, okay. Bloodhound Books are one of them. Um, because Excellent. Because they're this kind of, I don't know, this new, I call them cool traditional authors, uh, mm. publishers. They're just a little bit more switched on to the the modern world and how things work now. And that means digital as well. Um, and that you've got to market people and uh, you've got to get them out there. Um, I do think uh, Bloodhound are very strong, uh, you know, in their social marketing and also mm -hmm. in, in, in their sort of, as you say, is their, in their backing of the authors. I'm very aware of a very strong personality from Bloodhound books, which is, which is a good thing, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I came to them, I'd seen them on Facebook and, and quite often in my, in my feed there'll be a promotional um messages about the latest book that's out or somebody one of the authors is on a blog tour um, and I was actually recommended to them they were looking for for um, uh, another editor because they they decided it was a particular project and um, and it, it had a, a tight deadline and so I, I came on board um, and they not long after that they were doing a, a blog a giveaway 
So it was a bit like a, a mini group for that. It was just an evening where one it was featuring one of their author's books and they were inviting other authors who'd got books that they were happy to give away to set questions. So I gave away a couple of my books and also I do online teaching with Udemy. And so I gave away some of my ebooks and also some courses um, and I set a couple of questions. I think one of them was, who's your favorite baddie? Because I tend to write my crime. I tend to write from I do very little police procedural as Martina Cole. I found out today watching a BBC interview with her. Um, she likes writing from the, the criminal's point of view. And as I said earlier on, you, know, you get to have some fun when you can do nasty things to people that deserve it. And um, and so that's that's how I became involved. And, and I think blog tours really are the, the marketing, the way to, to for people to market and email newsletters. I'm, I'm hearing more and more. This is how um, an author, especially independent authors, you get more contacts. And it's all about it's the, the old. It's not what you know. It's who, you know, it's getting people on board. To, to find out, to get to the point where it's Martina Cole, you know, when are you get, is your next book coming out? And I know a lot of people take the day off when her books come out so that they can sit and read them and meet up in the evening and talk about them. Now you and, and that's, I... that's where we want. That's what we want as an author. I'm very interested in how you got involved in the, the Northern Crime and Publishment book, because when, when we met in, in Gretna, it's a long way to travel from where you live mm. um, up, up north. And, and most of the time it's people up north travelling down south to attend uh, events. How did you get involved in that little group? Because I was just amazed at what a, a close group and supportive group it was, but what a great event it was to have in this part it, of the world. It is. It's brilliant. I think I came across Graham first. And he was one of my early interviewees on my blog and he mentioned crime and publishment. And I'd been looking for other things, especially crime things to go to. And so I went to the first one. It was something he was just setting up. And I went to the first one. And I've been every year since then. Um, and the anthology came about because we were waiting on the Sunday morning. You either have you have the opportunity to either pitch to an agent or a publisher, depending on, on what year it is and you know, who's there. And I because you you never know when you're going in. I'd taken along and I was reviewing um, a charity anthology called uh, Ox Crimes, which is a, a crime book for Oxfam. And so I thought if I got time, I'll just sit and, and read. And if I end up on my own, I'll just sit and, and read. And I didn't because we all sit in the bar and chat. Um, but I had it with me on the on the table. And Janet Williamson, who's my co-editor for that, she said, oh, we should do something like that. So me being me said, oh, yes, I'll do it all. I'll get all the stories in and I'll edit them and I'll send them to you and you co-edit them and I'll design the cover and I'll upload it. And I did. And that's what I ended up doing. Um, Janet's we're now in the process of doing a second anthology. And the first one was for the hearing dogs for the deaf. And uh, Janet's taken over the reins for the second anthology, which the deadline's just passed. So it was the end of uh, June. So she's she's collating them all and editing them all. And then uh, I'll get it to, to sort it all out and help her put it online and design a cover and put it online. How important do you think for, for authors and editors that this networking is? Because you're very, very immersed. You were saying you've just come back from Harrogate. You're involved, I know, in a lot of teaching. How important is networking yeah. for the, the introverted profession of writing? 
Um, it is. I mean, it is because it's it's you only need to say the right thing to one person. I mean, it was through Graham uh, Smith that I actually got um, to Bloodhound Books. So it was somebody I'd met at um, and um, in um, March this year, I was at Crime and Publishment doing an editing class. And it was just somebody that was in the editing class had seen the shout out from from Bloodhound um, and put me forward. And um, so I wouldn't have got the Bloodhound books, I'm sure. Um, I might have done some some way down the line. Um, but it was just having gone to Crime and Publishment, met this lady. She then knew of me and knew of my editing um, and that she recommended me for to Bloodhound books. So you never know. You know, if you sit in front of your, um, your laptop doing your writing and um, you don't either go to something online or go to a physical event you never know what opportunities you're missing out on i do have to ask you because you you've self-published all of your books and you did mention right at the beginning of this interview that you have a mm. whiff of interest from a traditional author now you're you're doing the uh, writing work the editing work for a traditional author mm. where, where are yes. you in the the indie versus trad you know camps uh, did you ever aspire to be traditionally published or where, where are you on that argument well, I, I never actually aspired to to be a novelist. It was only NaNoWriMo that actually got me into to writing novels. Um, and I wrote, I, I self-published all the short stories because they'd been on my blog. So, and, and sadly, although short stories is, I probably shouldn't say this, um, is my favourite format of the two. Um, but once you, you know, not a lot of people buy them. Um, and once you've put something online, then, People are even less interested in buying something that people have seen already. And the first three, I think because it was easy to put them on, to put them to self-publish, and also because the first two were quite short and the serial data was in set in Northampton. So it just made sense for me. I just wanted them out there and, and to get people to read them. And once they were up, I then realised that it was a bit tumbleweed you know, nobody's buying my book, but I'm not telling anybody that they're out there. You just kind of assume that once they're available, that everybody's going to flock and that, that everyone will see that they're there. But there are so many fish in this big pond of self-publishing that it's you need somebody else to, to shout your corner. So, And I know a lot of self-publishers have been very successful. I volunteer at a uh, – I'm on a committee of Beacon Lit, which is a literary – festival the beginning of uh, july near aylesbury buckinghamshire and one of our guests this year was adam croft who sold over a million books he's he's totally well i think he's it, one of his one or two of his books are now with an arm of amazon the paperback um and so he has assistance now from uh, a publisher um but i think it's nice to have somebody uh, an agent is would be ideal i'd love an agent um because they get you they open the door that to potentially big publishers that you yourself wouldn't get you know the top publishers they're not interested in unless you've sold amazingly well like amanda hocking she was taken on by a a mainstream publisher because she'd already proven herself as a self-published author 50 shades of gray was self-published initially and then it was taken on by part of Random House. I think it's Random House. Um, but, yeah, I think it's – I probably do both. 
I would recommend, I, I did look, I sent my serial data shopping list off to 14 agents and they all said, well, it's, it's a story that's been done before. And one, one even said, Chicklet's dead. And being Facebook friends with Sue Moorcroft and Katie Ford and JJ Moyes and the likes, I kind of felt like saying, well, no, actually it's not. Um, but I then, I was also offered two contracts by local uh, one is a, a local publishing company um, and one is a, a national, uh, well, uh, uh, not in this area. And I was offered two contracts. And when I read them, my heart sank. I was delighted initially. Um, but I then, once you get offered a contract or if you sell a certain amount of books as a self-publishing, a self-published author, you can join the Society of Authors. So I sent off the two contracts. It was about a month in between. The first one, they said they gave me 14 reasons why I shouldn't sign it and warned me against signing it. It was effectively handing over the book forever for very little in return and doing all the work. And then the other um, the other one is, again, it was doing all the work myself. Um, and they said, well, you may as well just self-publish it. So with the serial data shopping list, that's what I ended up doing. But no, I think it's nice to be part of a family with a publisher, whether it's through an agent or directly. And you get, I mean, with Bloodhound Books, you've, you've seen, you know, they're prolific online with pushing their authors and helping them on their behalf. Because ultimately, as writers, we should be writing, not spending half of our life marketing. Well, the, the core part of your business is to is to offer book critiques for, for authors. Do you just do the crime? What what sort of service do you offer? Because we should let you plug this as part of the interview. Oh, I do. I do everything. I mean, I've literally, I have a lot of young adult fantasy um, since Divergent and um, the Mockingjay, the Hunger Games. There is a lot of, of authors out there who are, are writing young adult fantasy fiction. I've done, I've edited uh, blog posts for a lady who was new to blogging and she knew I did blogging, so she sent me her posts. Uh, I do other nonfiction. I've done one recently um, for with a, a book on entertainers. Um, I've, one I'm doing at the moment is a is a war novel, so that's for an independent author. And uh, and the the one after that will be crime for Bloodhound. But yeah, a real mixture because people find me on my blog, so they they write all sorts. So I I edit all sorts. So what are your plans for the future then? What, do you think it's good to be with continuing editing or are you really secretly aspiring to get those books published? I'd like to do half and half. If I could do three or four days a week editing, because I do enjoy it. Um, but I would love to, yes, I'd love to be an author in my own right where it pays the bills slightly more than the editing. That would be the dream. Thank you for listening to this week's Self-Publishing Journeys. If you enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with your indie author friends. Or you can leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whichever podcast directory you use. In the meantime, you'll find previous interviews and all the show notes at selfpublishingjourneys.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll have more great self-publishing tips for you next week.